you have a Bible, if you turn back to Mark chapter 13, the title of the message tonight, The Great Tribulation. So we're in Mark 13, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. Jesus says, and this is where we ended last time, and he says, You will be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And then he says, But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that reads understands, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be affliction or tribulation, such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he has chosen, he has shortened the days. And then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. And he says, But take heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. Now he ends it in verse 23. So we've been reading from the 13th chapter of Mark. And what's taking place here, Jesus is sitting on the hillside of the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And this is during Passion Week, what's known as Passion Week. And this is Tuesday night of Passion Week. And on Thursday, in just a few days, he's going to be eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And then on that night, we all know he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. And on Friday, he's going to be crucified. That's all happening during this week. When I was thinking about that Friday, he's crucified. I don't know how many of you have heard this sermon by this black preacher, S.M. Lockridge from Calvary Baptist Church. And he had that sermon. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. What's funny is I would thought that would have been on the Internet. You can't find it on there. And all you have is a guy that he just doesn't have what this guy had. They're saying the same exact words. They got the transcript. But I'm saying nobody can preach it like him. I'm telling you, that's, if you ever find that, let me know. That's just a great sermon. But that's what happens. So on the previous Sunday leading up to this Tuesday, though, we know Jesus, he rides into Jerusalem on a colt. They're proclaiming him as the king. On Monday, he cleanses the temple, doesn't he? He goes in there, throws out all the buyers and the sellers. That happens on Wednesday. On Tuesday, which is kind of where we've been at, he teaches all day in the temple. Now, could you imagine God himself in human flesh teaching in the temple and being able to go in there and hear that. I mean, that had to be something else. But he did that all day long, answered questions. And that's his final teaching in the house of God because he never comes back. It's the end of his public teaching. So he walks out of the temple. At the end of the day, Tuesday, he walks out of the temple with his disciples, and his disciples, as they're leaving, they're looking at the temple, and they're commenting on how impressive and how magnificent the temple and all its buildings looked. And here we know, we said last week, it's one of the eighth wonders of the world. It's incredible. But the thing was, we said Jesus wasn't impressed at all, was he? He said, no, nope, you guys are impressed with these stones, but I consider them stumbling stones. And he pronounced a judgment on the temple and on Israel. And it was just like when he cursed the fig tree and the fig tree was cursed from the roots up, from the ground up. He said the same thing is going to happen to the temple. It's going to be completely destroyed. He says, you guys are really impressed with this temple. See this temple you're so impressed with. He says, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And... His prophecy that he gave them, that's a hard word, really, but that prophecy was fulfilled to the letter 40 years later in AD 70 by Titus, the Roman general, literally fulfilled that because gold had gotten in those bricks and they were tearing them out to get to it. They leveled all of Jerusalem. It was totally laid waste. So you don't want Jesus pronouncing judgment on your life, do you? Is the moral of that story. So after he makes that strong prediction, 
of judgment. They walk out on the eastern gate. They're sitting down on the bank of the Kidron Valley, walk up to the Mount of Olives, and they sit down there. And they're sitting down, and you, you picture that. They walked up there, it's towards the end of the day. They're looking down the Mount of Olives, and they can see, looking into that temple, the sun setting, shining on that temple. It had to look magnificent. And I'm sure the disciples are sitting here thinking, you know, what a waste. I mean, we just heard what he said, and we know enough by now that if he said it, it's going to happen. And we're not going to question that. Are you sure that's going to happen? Because everybody else that's questioned him today, he's made a fool out of them. So we'll, we'll accept the fact that what he said is going to happen. I think that's probably what happened. But Peter, James, John, and they throw Andrew in this time. Normally it's the big three. Andrew got in there in on this one. They decide they're going to ask him two questions. They asked at the beginning of chapter 13. So they're saying, all right, well, you said this temple is going to be destroyed. We believe you, but when is that going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And the second thing, can you give us a sign of when this is going to happen and the sign of your coming and the end of the world? So we know that they said that from Matthew's account. I think they looked at both events happening as being at one and the same time. So I think they thought when the temple's going to be destroyed, it's going to be because he's coming back in his second coming. The temple's destroyed. All of that is overturned. He's going to destroy all the nations that have been oppressing Israel, and he's going to take the throne, set up his kingdom, and all of the messianic prophecies are going to be fulfilled. That's what I think they thought was going to happen. They couldn't picture this as being separated. And so they knew who he was, didn't they? They knew who Jesus was. Peter had confessed way back, I believe it was Mark 8. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They knew who he was, the promised Messiah. They'd heard him say just that day that he's not only of the seed of David, of the flesh of David, but he's also the Lord of David. So we know who you are and we know what you're going to do. We know what the promises are all about. We just want to know when. When are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to establish your glory and your reign on this earth? When, when, when? That's what they want to know. That's what their questions are. And what was his answer? His answer was, well, I can't exactly tell you when. I don't even know. He didn't know the Son of God. We looked at this. Let's look at it again. Look over in verses 32 to 35 need to keep reminding ourselves of this. Verses 32 in chapter 13, Jesus says, But of that day and of that hour, he says, Knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son. One person knows, the Father. In verse 33, he says, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes, at evening or at midnight or the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. So what's the word? The word to us is we better watch and pray and be faithful to what he's given us to do. We need to be, as we're hearing on Sundays, doers of the word. So he says, we looked at last week, he says, I can't tell you exactly when all this is going to happen, but I can tell you this. I can tell you what to expect. What to expect from here right now until I come back to reign. That's what he is. And the important thing that we need to grasp out of all of that is he's just not speaking to the disciples, is he? In what we looked at last week, verses 5 through 13. He's speaking to all Christians, and he's especially speaking to us. We can know what to expect, too, can't we? So we looked at verses 5 to 13, and what do we get out of all of that? What do you get out of verses 5 to 13 that he's saying is going to happen between now and the time he comes? These things are going to happen, the birth pain. We're living in a cursed world, aren't we? We're living in a cursed world, and the other thing you can get out of that is that it is going to get worse, way worse, before it ever gets better. And we need to just understand that. The United Nations was created for what? We had world wars. We're going to have peace, aren't we? And has it worked? Has it improved anything? The fact of the matter is 
None of that has worked. All the philosophers and all their ideas on what we can do to bring peace on earth. So you think about where we're at today versus 100 years ago, in the, or the 1900s. All the scientific, technological, educational advancements that our world has made, it's unbelievable. I wouldn't have believed 30 years ago we can do today what we did. Honestly, any of you that are that old, would you have thought that? I mean, the young people, that's you're like frog and water, it's what you grow up in. But here's what we need to see. Despite all of that, has man progressed one inch morally or spiritually? Has not progressed one inch, has actually gone the other direction, is the matter is, because humans today are just as selfish, just as corrupt, just as immoral, just as greedy, just as proud, just as you could just keep on with the adjectives as ever, and I would say they're worse today. So it's not like anything going on today has never gone on through history, but not as publicly as it has, not as accepted as it has. And so what we need to see is that what Jesus is telling us that we can expect that we're reading here in Mark 13. If you want to get the full picture, read Mark 13, read Matthew 24, read Luke 21. It'll give you the full picture of what's coming, what's going to happen. But what we see from all that is that he's not bringing a utopia. And this world will never be a utopia the way it stands right now. But it's going to be a world of increased troubles, isn't it? So even Romans 8 says that the creation was delivered into what? The bondage of corruption. And it goes on to say in Romans 8 that it, the creation, it groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So even the creation is having those same birth pangs with us together. Creation's suffering too. They said it wasn't willingly subjected to this, but it's because we have brought the curse in. So this whole world is living under a curse. It's getting worse. I hate to say that, but that's the way it is. Look in Mark 13 and look in verse 8. Here's what it says. He says, for nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in divers places. There will be famines and troubles. And he says what there? It's the beginning of the sorrows. So he's telling us in these verses that when we experience the false prophets, false teachers, the wars, the earthquakes, the famines, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the floods. Those are the troubles and they're multiplied out. AIDS, you just name the things, the pestilences that come on the earth and different diseases they don't have cure for. When we experience all of those things, though, what does he say? He says, don't be troubled. So we need to see that that's what's to be expected and we're not to be troubled. Look at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled for such things must needs be and he says what there in verse 7 but the end is not yet so he's saying when we see a lot of things happening what if we have another hurricane hit what if we have an earthquake happen out in california i mean it could just be one disaster after another to where financially this country can't handle it that very well could happen he's saying don't be troubled don't panic these things must needs be and that is not the end now, it probably would seem like it if you're, the, like I said, if you're the one right in the middle of all of that. But he's saying, no, he said just the opposite. It's just the beginning of labor. But remember, we said labor starts out very sporadic and far apart. And the labor pains, as it goes on, become more frequent and intense. And that's the way the Bible teaches it's going to be as we get closer to the end. The pain, the pressure, and the intensity of the world's troubles will become closer together until it culminates in what is known as the Great Tribulation. That's what we're going to talk about today. And so that's a period when all of these birth pains that he's talked about are going to escalate to a level he's saying that we have never experienced or actually could really even imagine. So you're going to still have wars, earthquakes, famines, persecutions, but it's going to be on a scale that is off the scale. So look what it says. We read this, but look back in verse 19 to 20. He says, for in those days shall be, I don't know why King James translated that affliction because just further down it's the exact same word. It's translated tribulations. So it will be affliction, but it says there shall be tribulation such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And he goes on to say, this is how bad it'll be and except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh 
could survive, could be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he has chosen, it says he has shortened those days. So verses 19 and 20 describe the great tribulation. And it's a period of how long? Seven years. But how do we know that it's seven years? Well, if you would, turn back to Daniel chapter 9. I was going to just quote this, but I think actually we probably ought to see it. Look in Daniel chapter 9, if you would. The Great Tribulation, this is where you get the seven years from. You get it from these weeks. Beginning in verse 24 of Daniel 9, it says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score in two weeks. That's 62 weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score in two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he, here this is talking about the Antichrist and the seven years, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So there's your three and a half years. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, which is what we just read in Mark 13, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So, Daniel says the beginning there in verse 24, he's saying there is going to be 70 weeks. And all of those 70 weeks relate to the nation of Israel. From when Jerusalem was rebuilt, when the decree went out, until the time when the Antichrist is destroyed and Christ returns. That is what the 70 weeks cover. And all commentators, pretty much almost virtually all commentators agree that the 70 weeks refer to 70 periods of seven years years. We think of a week as in seven days, a week of days. And here it's a week of years, 70 years. So we have 70 times 70. 70 times 70. And that equals 490 years. I got that much done in my math classes. I can handle that pretty good. And so the time it took from the decree until Jerusalem was destroyed, which is the first period it talks about, is seven weeks. The first period is seven weeks, and that's how many years? 49 years. And then the second one is 62 weeks. This is where the temple's restored. And then you have 62 weeks, and I think that's 434 years. And that's from this time until the Messiah, the crucifixion. So how many weeks does that total up to? Can anyone total that for me? That's 69 weeks. And this has all happened. So that leaves us one week. And that is future still. And that's seven years. All right. Does that help out? Any? And that's really what is being said here in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. So what's going to happen in that one year, it's known as what? It's commonly known as Daniel's 70th week. Like I said, it's still future. And during that time, when we read here, the Antichrist, he's going to make a covenant with Israel, and it's going to be a seven-year covenant. And what's going to happen is he is going to break that covenant in the midst of so here we look in verse 27, it says, He shall confirm the covenant with many for how long? One week. So there's where we get the seven years, okay? Just so you know. And it says, In the midst of the week, so in the midst of the seven years, three and a half years, he shall cause, and this is the abomination of desolation that we just read about in Daniel. That's when it's going to happen. In the midst of that week, in the three and a half years, he'll cause the sacrifice to cease. So all of that implies what? This calls the sacrifices to cease means there's going to have to be a temple to have the sacrifices, right? So there's going to have to be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem is what's going to have to happen there. 
And that's what he does. He's going to cause it to cease and the overspreading of abominations. He shall make it destroy is what it says there. That is the indicator that the tribulation is going to happen. And in the midst of that seven week period, the abomination of desolation will take place. That is the indicator that Jesus has given us that the Lord is coming back, isn't it? Isn't that what we read? Go back to Mark 13. That's what he's saying there in verses 14 down through 23. Actually, where that whole section we're reading there. So here's the question is, what will the tribulation period be like? This great tribulation period be like? So it's described in detail, more or less, in Revelations chapter 6 through 19. And here's how they divide up the judgments that fall in three sequences. So you have what are known as the seal judgments. Then you have what are called the trumpet judgments. And the last judgments that are given are the vile judgment. And the way it is, it's like one set of judgments telescopes out of the other one. So at the last seal, out of the last seal, telescopes out. Out of that comes the trumpet judgments. And out of the last trumpet judgments comes the vile judgments. And the vile judgments are terrible. Absolutely terrible. You could say they're vile. They are the wrath of God poured out unmixed. Nobody wants to be here during that. The seal judgments cover more or less, I believe, it's, it's hard to pinpoint these things. I've studied this out a lot way back when, and I haven't had enough time to get into it in a lot of detail here lately, but it's a big maze to try to put it together. And that's why all through church history, you have everybody saying, I got it figured out. People as recently as 10, 20s, I got everything figured out. Who's what and where it's coming from. And none of it's been right exactly. So I think there's certain things you can learn but I think the seal judgments more or less cover the entire period. The sixth seal talks about where the sun becomes black and the moon becomes like blood and all the stars fall from heaven. I mean, that is at the end, right before Jesus' return. And things, I believe, that are said there cover the entire period. The trumpet judgments, though, I believe, cover around the middle and further. And those vile judgments, they come quickly. They are at the very end. You get the impression they're coming like one on top of another. It's the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. So if you would, turn to Revelation 6. We can just do a quick survey and look what these judgments will be like. Get an idea of what's coming. We talked about in Revelation 5 and into 6 that the Lamb was the only one qualified to open those seals. What's going to happen, the, the book that was sealed, the end of time, God's judgment on the earth. And look in chapter 6, it's verse 1, you could kind of just skim through. I'm not going to read every word of all these judgments, so you can just kind of skim with your eye to see what I'm talking about. But it said he saw the Lamb opened one of the seals, and that's the first seal. And verse 2 talks about a white horse. He had a bow but with no arrows. And it said he had a crown, and it says he went forth conquering and to conquer. And I think that's going to be an element of peace with the white horse, that there's going to be peace at the beginning of the tribulation. I'm not getting dogmatic on any of this. And then in verse 3, with the second seal, you have the opposite of that. You have a second beast on a horse that is red. The other was on a white horse. And it says to this beast, power was given to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And so there you have the warfare that is going to take place. And then on the third seal, it says this rider is on a black horse, and it talks about he has a pair of balances in his hand, and he goes on to talk a measure of wheat for a penny. Basically what that's talking about there is going to be famine on the earth. That's what you have with the third seal. The fourth seal is on a pale horse, and... On him was death and hell, and power was given them to kill a fourth of the earth. Now, that is unbelievable amount of people. No small amount there. And they're killed with the sword, with hunger, and with death. And animals are loosed on men. They lose their natural fear of man. That's what it says there, and with the beast of the earth. In verse 9, it talks about the fifth seal, and this is the martyrs that are crying out, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, it says in verse 9. And it says they cry out with a loud voice, asking God to have justice for what has happened to them. And they're given a white robes and say, you just need to rest for a little while until your other fellow servants are slain and martyred. The sixth seal in verse 12, it says there was an earthquake, a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And here's when you need to be worried about a blood moon. 
But this is going to be after the tribulation. People got things out of order to get all nervous about a blood moon now, is the point. So that happens. The moon becomes blood. The stars of the heaven fall to earth. And verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich and all the mighty men, they're hiding themselves in the den and in the rocks and in the mountains. And they're saying, we can't face this. The lamb's coming back in his wrath and they're hiding themselves from the face of the lamb, the him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. The seventh seal is found over in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and when he had opened the seventh seal, what's coming next is so bad there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. Because heaven sees what's coming and they're in all. And we should be in all. These are the trumpets. The seventh seal opens up to the trumpet judgments and they start down in verse 7. In verse 7, and the first angel sounded his trumpet, and when that happened, it says, Hail and fire mingled with blood were cast upon the earth. And when that happens, it says, A third part of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Could you imagine what that would look like? There's a lot of trees in Shelby County. And in this world, a third of them gone. It says, the second angel sounded in verse 8, and a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea. I don't know what that could be. Maybe an asteroid. Who knows what? But because of that, whatever this is, a third part of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures that lived in the sea and had life died. And a third part of all the ships that were in the ocean were destroyed. Verse 10, the third angel sounded its trumpet, and it says, and a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of the waters, and a third of the waters became wormwood. They couldn't drink it. People that did, they died from drinking that water. The name of the star is Wormwood. The fourth angel sounded, verse 12, and it says, a third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars. Wow. The fifth angel in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, I saw a star from heaven fall upon the earth, and to him, it's a being, was given the key of the bottomless pit. And when he opened that up, look in verse 3, there came out of it, of the smoke, these creatures, whatever they are, whatever it is, the only way he could describe it is they were locust. And it says these locusts were given power, but look at the end of verse 4, but only those men... This, they would sting these men and hurt none of the vegetation, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they, should, they wouldn't kill them, but that they should torment them for five months. And look in verse 6. Here's another one of these. Could you imagine? And in those days it says, shall men seek death. They'll want to die, and they can't. They shall not find it. They'll desire to die, and death will flee from them. Look in verse 13, the sixth trumpet. And it said then they heard a voice of the four horns of the golden altar. And what happens then is these angels loose this army. And it says in verse 15 that they are going to slay the third part of men. Another unbelievable amount of men. And verse 16 says the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000. And that's an army of 200 million men, I guess, or creatures, whatever it is. That's a lot of people going out to destroy. And the seventh trumpet is clear over in chapter 11, verse 15. And like I said, this ushers in the vile judgments. And so when you look there, it says, The seventh angel sounded, and there was great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That what they're telling you is the end's coming quick. It's coming quick. And so that ushers in the vile judgments. And those are found, if you'll turn to chapter 16, we'll look at those. And it starts in verse 2, the first vial, the first angel with the vial. He went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome, that means evil and grievous, painful, sore upon the men. Which men did that fall on, which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image? You know, that means that's going to be almost everybody on earth. The majority of people are going to be experiencing this, because almost everyone's going to take the mark. 
And then the second angel in verse 3 poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of dead men. And here, whereas before just a third, I believe, of the living creatures died, here every living creature died. It was in the sea. Nothing left alive in the oceans. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of water, and they became blood. So now there's nothing to drink but blood because the Lord said, you shed the blood of my children, and now that's what you get a drink. I mean, I'm saying this is God not sparing anything, pouring out his wrath. In verse 8 it says, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And did they repent? It says they blasphemed the name of God. And the fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And again, it says they repented not of their deeds. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared." That possibly could be back where it said the 200,000, because that dealt with the river Euphrates too. They were able to cross that army, that green army coming in. It's, they're gathering for what? Do you know what they're gathering for at this point? The Battle of Armageddon, because look what it says there at the end of verse 14. And that's what's happening. These spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. It's the battle of Armageddon's was it's describing there in verse 14. And so in verse 17, here's the seventh vial. Pours it into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. This is the end of it. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city, Jerusalem, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And look in verse 21. There fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. That's a hundred pounds. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. That's not what you read right before you go to bed. Especially if you've had pizza. You might have a rough night of sleep. Well, that's terrible, isn't it? I mean, it's sober in here, but it's sober to read that. But that's what's coming. I mean, that's what's coming on this earth. I don't believe too far in the distant future. I don't know. And you're thinking to yourself, well, man, do I have to go through that? Most conservative evangelicals, churches that are not amillennial, here's what I mean by that, okay? A lot of conservative evangelicals, I say a lot, there are some that are becoming amillennial in their beliefs of the end times. And what that means is they say there is no tribulation. They say there's no rapture. There's no thousand year reign. And the reason why is because we're experiencing all those things now. So we're experiencing the tribulation now. We're experiencing the thousand year reign of Christ now. That's what they believe. And I'm saying there's a lot of people, well, not in here, hopefully, that really believe that. And I'm saying they, the whole book of Revelation, the way they explain it, and I had to read these books in school, painfully read them and do book reviews on them, but they believe that the whole book of Revelation is just symbolic. It's just symbolic. It's describing what's happening to us right now. But the churches that are conservative evangelicals that believe in a rapture, almost all of them, without exception, pretty much, believe that who's going to be raptured? Everybody that goes to church. I mean, that's more or less the way they teach it. I really don't think it's going to be quite that way. I don't know that I think the whole church, quote-unquote, is going to be raptured. I think it's going to be the ones that are ready. Isn't that what Jesus kept warning us? So just because we go to church, hear teaching, we even believe the right things about the rapture, does that mean you're going to get raptured, any of us? And we can't take that for granted, can we? 
That's an easy one to amen. I'm not going to be here for all of this and amen, amen. Well, we need to amen the fact that Jesus said we have to watch and pray and be ready. That's what all of us, I mean, including myself, we need to take that seriously, don't we? That we're ready and that we can avoid. And as Terry will pray a lot of times at prayer meeting, that God will count us worthy to escape all these things. And Jesus says we should be praying always for that because it's coming and we need to be ready. The one thing you hardly ever find when you read teaching in any commentary that I've read on Revelation chapter 12, and almost everybody, I can't think of an exception to that, will say that the man-child in Revelation 12 is Jesus. Everybody says that. And I personally would disagree with that, not because I'm so smart or so much spiritual than any of these other people. I don't have time to get into a lot of the reasons I have about all that. But for one thing, though, the man-child is caught up when in Revelation 12? As soon as he was born. And Jesus was not caught up as soon as he was born. Another argument they'll say is the man-child, it says that he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. And what's funny to me is, do you know that exact wording is used in the book of Revelation of the overcomers in the church? And yet that is never connected in any commentary that I ever read. They never make that connection. But here's what it says in Revelation 2, verses 26 to 27. It says, And he that overcomes and keeps my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. That is what's said of the man-child that's raptured in Revelation chapter 12. That's what it says. But who is that said to? Him that overcomes, and it says, and keeps my word unto the end. So here's the point I would get out of that, and that's what we have traditionally been taught in this church. So the point I would get out of all that is, do we want to be raptured? Do we want to believe that we can escape all these things that are coming on the end? And that promise is there. I mean, it's valid. There's nobody here that would be disqualified, except it says, those that keep his word, that means keep and hear and do what he says unto the end. It's to him that overcometh, not that is overcome. That's what we have to do. Because you think about it, who is the one saint that's mentioned in Hebrews 11 that was raptured? Enoch. And what does it say about Enoch? It says, by faith Enoch was raptured, translated, that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. And listen to what it says at the end. For before his translation, this is the testimony that he had, that he pleased God. So that's what we need to be concerned about. So if we're living a life where we're keeping his word, doing his word, we're consciously saying, I want to live to please you, Lord. And all of us know individually whether that is really how we wake up every day and approach our day. We know whether that's the case or not. You don't have to worry about, well, man, I just don't feel that spiritual today. I'm saying, I think if that is your attitude and approach, God will do a work in you and he'll have you ready when the times, because the rapture hadn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. How's all that going to happen, though? How does he get us ready? We've been talking about it on Sunday. Trials. We've got to endure our trials and stay faithful to Him. That's how we're going to build our arcs. That's how we're going to be ready for the end. We've talked about this. If we know that wars, famines, earthquakes, false prophets, persecutions, that's what Jesus said we'll experience now. And if you were paying attention, that's what we read about in the book of Revelation, the same types of things, wasn't it? So if that's all going to happen, how can we know then when it really is the tribulation period? How are we going to know when the seven years have started? How are we going to know? Are we back in Mark? Look what he says in verse 14. He says, When you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not. And here's where we know he's not writing to the disciples because he says, Let him that reads understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's saying when you see the abomination of desolation takes place, that's how you can know you're in the tribulation and the end is very soon at hand. That's what he says. And who's the one that spoke that? Who did he say spoke about that? Daniel the prophet. 
spoke about it three times. You can look these up later. We looked one of them up. He spoke about the abomination of desolation in Daniel 9.27, 11.31, and in chapter 12, Daniel 12, verse 11, three times. Chapter 11.31 is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a type of the Antichrist. But the other two are talking about the Antichrist, all right? And so what is this abomination of desolation? An abomination is something that is totally defiling, something that is totally loathsome or disgusting to God. So it can be an act of blasphemy. Anything like that would qualify. And desolation, the word could mean devastation or an utter desecration. So this abomination of desolation, it will take place when the Antichrist comes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And what does he do? What is the abomination that he does? He presents himself as God. I think you could call that an act that is disgusting to God. An act of blasphemy that would totally desecrate the temple, wouldn't you? Well, I'll tell you, that's the way Paul interpreted the words of Jesus. And I'll tell you how we know that. If you'll turn over to 2 Thessalonians 2, that's the way Paul interpreted what Jesus said. So look what he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, verse 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. Don't be shaken as that the day of Christ is at hand. He says, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is is God. There it is, the abomination of desolation. Verse 5, remember ye not when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and know you not what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. So those Christians back then in Thessalonica, they were receiving a lot of persecution, and they probably thought, well, maybe the day of the Lord was upon them. And Paul's saying, look, don't you all get all worked up? He tells them, don't be soon shaken in mind or like you got a letter from us. Don't be deceived that way. Two things, he says, and we know this, we've heard this before, two things have to happen first. There has to be this falling away, and the man of sin has to be revealed. That has to happen, and the rest is just the birth pangs, isn't it? He's saying we can know, our Lord's told us we can know how the tribulation has kicked in by the revealing of the Antichrist. And when he's revealed, he is going to be terrible. Worse than Hitler. So I think at first, Brother Hamilton said this, I agree with him. I mean, he's going to be the answer to the world's problem. And the reason is, getting back to what we read in, in Daniel 9.27, what's the one peace treaty that can't ever seem to get signed and work? A peace treaty with Israel and the Arab nations. And he's the one that is somehow going to manage to broker that deal. And he's going to bring peace to the world because he's going to be able to bring peace to the Middle East. And that's like the source of a whole lot of trouble. Now, like we read, halfway through that peace treaty, though, his true nature is going to come out and he's going to turn on Jews and Christians. He hasn't already turned on because it says in Revelation 13, 7, it was given unto him. And here's one thing we need to understand. When you read Revelation 13, we'll go back to that. But all the power that the Antichrist has, the Bible says it was given unto him. It was given unto him. In other words, he was allowed, it was given to him by God to do what he did. So in other words, the comfort you can get from that is he's in control of everything, always. But it was given unto him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And Daniel 7.25 says, He shall speak great words against the Most High. He'll wear out the saints of the Most High. He's talking about the Jews there. This is Daniel. And think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times. That's talking about three and a half years. He's going to wipe out two-thirds of the Jews during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Zechariah 13 says, and in the land, two-thirds will be cut off and die, but one-third will be left. That's the remnant that God saves when the whole nation saved. But two-thirds of them...
are going to be wiped out, massacred. But one-third, he said he's going to do a refining and a purging work. They're going to go through a refining and purging work there to come out like gold. It's called the day of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 37 says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. Even the time of Jacob's trouble. Israel's going to get persecuted by the Antichrist like they never have before. And he says, though, Jeremiah says, But he, Israel, shall be saved out of it. And Daniel 12, 1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be, Daniel says, a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. So there's hope for all, isn't there? Even the Jews, they're going to lose two-thirds. But a third is going to make it through. If the Antichrist and Hitler and a lot of people today had their way, there would not be a Jew left breathing air. It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. God will have mercy on them. A large number of Christians and Jews are going to get massacred, like I said, during the second half of the tribulation. But those that are faithful to the Lord will go into His presence, won't they? That's what we read about in Revelation 6. The souls of them, they're in the presence of God. And it says that God Himself will do this for these people that have come through this tribulation. He'll wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And I mean, that's something we can all look forward to, can't we? We don't have to go through the tribulation to look forward to that. When this happens, when the Antichrist makes himself known by desecrating the temple, what should be the reaction? Uh, I'm not saying you'll be here for that, but what should be the reaction if you're a Christian or a Jewish Christian that's living in Judea? And the answer to that is simple. Get out as fast as you can. you got a witnessing program, it's all over. You need to get out of there. So go back to Mark 13. And look what it says in verse 14 through 18. Mark 13, he says, But when you see that, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, or he it should read, then let them that be in Judea do what? Flee to the mountains. And let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. Let him that is in the field not turn back again to take up his garment. And woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. And all of those images that are given there are to give a sense of urgency, immediate urgency. you got to understand, one thing, whenever an army would attack, the people in Israel would flee to the mountains. That's the first thing he talks about. And they had these flat-topped roofs that they would go up a lot of times, and that's where they'd eat their dinner or they'd entertain. And the staircase was in the back. When you're up there, you come down in the back, and he's saying, you don't have time when this happens. When you see this happen, you don't even have time to go down that stair, that little ladder down the back and go around to the front where they would have to go in there to get their possessions. You don't have time to do that and go in there and get the family photo album that you want to take with you and put under your arm. Don't have time for that. You just got time to get down off that ladder and run. That's what he's saying. And the farm worker that had, it was a cold night, started off cold in the morning, took his coat off, had it laying over there somewhere in the field. He's worked up. But you don't have time to go get the coat. You need to get out of here. Trouble's on its way. And he's saying if you're a pregnant woman or a nursing mother, pray that's not the case because I'm not going to ask any of them to demonstrate it. They can't run very fast. And a nursing mother, they can't run that fast. That's the point of all of that. And in the winter, he says, pray that your flight not be in the winter. Why? It's cold. And the Jordan River, the rains come and all the rivers in the Jordan River are swollen. You're going to have trouble crossing any of that, getting out of there. That's the whole point. When that Antichrist appears, his wrath is going to start being revealed. And if you're in Jerusalem at that time, no matter who you are, it's time to get out of there as fast as you can. Urgency to flee. Because God's saying that because he wants to protect his people in that case. The ones that can get out of there, and he will. Look down in verse 20. He says here, Except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, 
whom he has chosen, he has shortened those days. Like I said, he's in control. So no matter how terrible anything seems to be, whether we're in the tribulation or not, we need to remember that God is in control of all events, isn't he? I mean, just can't say that too much, really, can we? He's going to allow some of his people to die during that time. We read about that. There's going to be martyrs. But he is also going to be preserving both Jews and Gentiles. Why does he have to preserve them? It's for the elect's sake, he's got to let some of them live. And he's going to preserve them. And I don't know if Revelation 12, when it talks about when Satan's cast down and he's going after the woman and she's given wings to fly in the wilderness. I don't know how that's working. But I think that's God preserving his remnant. They're going to be literally flesh and blood people that are Christians that Jews and Gentiles come through that tribulation period and enter into his millennial kingdom. Because there's children talked about during the millennium. They're going to be having families. They're going to, earth is going to be repopulated. He's got to have somebody to do that. And those are the ones that are going to be doing it. He's going to shorten those days for his elect's sake. So what do we see with this? We see that God is sovereign, isn't it? He is going to protect his elect, but yet the elect have a responsibility, don't they? It's both sides of the coin. He's going to protect them, but what do they have to do? They have to flee. He's not going to grab their legs and have them running. They've got to flee. And I'm saying he tells us not only do they have to flee the persecution of the Antichrist, but they also have to flee what? False prophets and false teachers. Because look what it says in verses 21 to 23. And he says, if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there. He says, believe him not, for false Christ and false prophets shall rise. They'll show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. He says, but take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. I mean, here's what's going to be the case. It's going to be so chaotic at that time. And maybe before that time for us, that people are going to be, looking for answers. There's going to be a great temptation to look for somebody that's got the answers. And he's saying these false Christ and false prophets are going to appear like they have got the answer. They're going to be performing signs and wonders and miracles. Anybody that does that, everybody just automatically thinks anything they say is that's got to be Bible. That's the way it is, isn't it? I mean, I'm telling you, that's usually the way that works. And that's what's going to be happening. He's saying that power that these false Christ and false prophets have is going to be so powerful that it's not a matter of some mere flesh and blood person is going to resist it. Because he says, if it were possible, they would seduce even the elect. So convincing to almost everybody. But he says somehow the elect are going to be spared. And let me just say this at the end. Why is that going to be the case? Because these principles will apply to them, I believe. They also apply to us now because there are people now coming to seduce us. And it's happened all along. He's saying the spirit of Antichrist, this seducing spirit, this spirit of error, if you read 1 John, it's going to be big time and get more big time the closer we get to the end. But it has always been here, hasn't it? That's always been the case. And so what are the safeguards for that? Why is it that the elect aren't going to be seduced? Why is that going to happen? I think, first of all, that true believers will have the Spirit in them. And that's no small thing because 1 John 2 tells us this. He says, these things I have written you concerning them that seduce you. Isn't that what we just talked about? They would seduce even the elect. He says, but the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie, even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. And what I'm saying is, this is something critical for us. Whenever we're hearing teaching from anybody, I don't care who it is, he's saying that anointing that is in you, when you know the word, it should alert you that something's not right with what was said. There should be what we call a check in your spirit. Maybe you can't put your finger on it, but there's just something not right about that. And he's saying that spirit in you recognizes truth. And I'm saying that's one of the safeguards that is going to help us. And it's also going to help people, I believe, in the end times. And the other thing is, as believers, if we know the word and have paid attention through the years to the teaching we've had, what's one thing we do? So when you have somebody that says they're a Messiah, a prophet, a religious figure, what's speaking through them? It's a spirit, isn't it? So that's how false spirits come around and deception. Back to 1 John, what does he say we're supposed to do? 
test the spirits or try them. Because he says there, and this I think will be more and more applicable as time goes on, that every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come and even now is already in the world. There's another warning right there. He's saying that spirit of Antichrist, which is going to deny Jesus came in the flesh. I'm saying Islam denies that Jesus came in the flesh and that he died on the cross. They think he was a prophet. He couldn't have died on the cross. And that's a religion that's taken over the world right now, isn't it? A lot of people believe that the Antichrist will come out of Islam. I don't know. Got a book on that. I started reading it. Seems like there's a good possibility. But at one point they thought the Pope was the Antichrist. And I don't think he is. I don't know. So who is it? The Pope? But I do know this, that we will be able to test that spirit. We can test it now. They'll be able to test it then. And the other, the third safeguard is this. John 10, 4 says this, listen to this. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. Why do they follow him? For they know his voice. And it says a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him for they know not the voice of strangers. So we need to be learning the voice of our Lord through the word and through prayer. And that's the safeguards that God has put in place to protect his sheep. So we have to do our part, don't we? We have to know the word. We have to be able to discern the witness of the spirit. And to do that, you have to be in the spirit. And the other thing is spend time in prayer so that we know the voice of our shepherd, the good shepherd. <laughs> and then we won't follow a stranger. And the one word we should know is what? The one word we ought to know, he's saying that if they say Christ is here, he's there, he's in this place, that place, he says, don't fall for that. Why is that? Can someone tell me why we shouldn't fall for that? Why if they say he's in the inner chamber or he's out in the desert, why should we not fall for that? You all know? He's not going to come that way, is he? How's he coming back? He said, the angel said the same way he left, went up in the clouds, is the same way he's coming back. And I mean, it's right here. Look what it says in verse 24. In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. In verse 25, the stars of heavens will fall. And look what it says in verse 26. And then they shall see the Son of Man coming, how? In the clouds with great power and glory. And he shall send his angels and they'll gather the elect. And there's going to be a shout, a trumpet sound. He's going to, all the world's going to see him. So that's why he's saying, don't fall for that. You should know the word that much. It's not going to be a secret when he comes back. He's going to come back where to? To the Mount of Olives. And his feet are going to fall on the Mount of Olives, split it in half. The safeguard's knowing the Word, not following all this other stuff. And when you get out of the Word, then you don't remember it or you forget it. It's taken from you. What we need to see is that our Lord has laid out history. That's what he's done there. He's told us the history of the world from before his crucifixion as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives all the way up to the time of his second coming to the end. He's told us what to expect. And he's told us three times to take heed, to watch out. And so look what he says in verse 23. He says, but take ye heed. Behold, I have already told you, I have foretold you all things. He's saying, so we need to be on our guard. And we have no excuse, none of us do, sitting in here tonight if we're left holding the bag. Because he said, I foretold you all things. And he hasn't told us the specific day or hour, but he's told us all the indicators of his coming. When we should not worry because certain things are happening, calamities and things on here, and when we can know that He is close. He's told us all of that. He's given us everything to be ready for His return and not be fooled. Don't need to be fooled. Like I said earlier, what we need to be doing, though, is taking the time we have now. Obviously, the Great Tribulation is not upon the earth, is it? Because when that happens, it's too late. So we need to be taking the time now. We've been like Noah, warned of things that he has not seen as yet. I've never actually seen all of this stuff that's coming that we read about in the book of Revelation. I can read, and I'm saying it's all inspiring. I've never seen it. Noah had never seen a flood, but he didn't wait until the flood came. The ones that did, it's too late. 
And so for us and our families, the point of all this is, and the point of what Jesus is saying, he's foretold us all things. And he's saying we need to watch and pray and be doing his will, don't we? And then we can be ready for that because I'll quote what he said earlier. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes, whether it's evening, midnight, the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. Now Paul says in Thessalonians, he says, you're not going to be that way. You all aren't going to be asleep. You'll be ready for him. And that's what we'll be, right? We won't be sleeping. We'll be ready for the Lord. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. And to ask you, Lord, that these terrible judgments that are coming in the future on this earth, Lord, that we pray that you'll count us worthy to escape all the things that are coming, Lord. And I just ask you'll impress upon us that we need to daily be seeking you, reading your word, learning to be obedient to what you show us and to seek your face, Lord, that we can be prepared. And we ask, Lord, you also give us the grace to get through the trials that come our way. And so that we can be building in our endurance, Lord, and our faithfulness to you, and that we can be found pleasing in your sight, that we can't escape all the things that are coming on this earth, us and our family and our children. And it's nothing we have to worry or be afraid of. We know you're in control of all things. And if we're faithful to you, Lord, you'll have us ready. And so we trust you for that. And we thank you for the word that you've given us tonight. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.